Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Dimmitt. Today's guest on the podcast is Ethan Pringle. Ethan has been near the top of the rock climbing game for over a decade and is one of the most accomplished all-around rock climbers in the world, having climbed V15, 515B Sport, 14C Trad, and Highball Boulders up to V13. He's also repeated some of the hardest deep water solos in the world. He's on-sided 14B and has put up countless first ascents in all the different rock disciplines. This guy is a total stud. We talked about practicing rock climbing versus training and how Ethan thinks about each of those things and his progression over the last decade. We talked about some of the lessons and takeaways he learned from the 50 days he spent projecting The Nest, his first V15, which he did back in February of 2018, and which is still his longest project to date, including Jumbo Love, his first 15B. We got into some real talk and talked about watching his dad go through a severe stroke and what it has been like to take care of him for the past six and a half years, about his experience with chronic grief and why Ethan now recognizes the heartbreak he's experienced as a gift, and how it has opened him up to experience a deeper love than he ever had before. We also talked about takeaways from a 10-day Vipassana meditation course Ethan did, about his process for projecting highballs, and about two of his highball projects in Yosemite, and his dream of finding an all-natural 515 in the western United States. I want to say thank you to my friend Morgan for connecting me with Ethan, and a huge thanks to Ethan for this interview. I had a great time talking to this guy. He is an incredible human being. I hope you guys are well. Much love. Please enjoy this conversation with Ethan Pringle. Well, cool, Ethan. I think we're ready to roll. Okay, cool. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Did you get all that already? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's okay. We we'll edit this and okay. we'll just uh we'll just pick up right here. Um cool. it it was really fun. We were talking earlier today trying to lock down a time to do this and you know, I flaked out and then you asked to bounce it back, which kind of made me feel feel a little better. But um then you sent me a really funny text message. You know, you wanted to to push it back 15 minutes because you were doing a workout and I just got a text from you that said like, oh man, I can't do pistol squats at all. Like, or at least not barefooted. <laughs> Tell me what you were doing before, uh, before we got on the phone here. Um, so I decided to try to squeeze in a short workout today before we hopped on the phone. I was listening, I listened to Jonathan's episode of the nugget last night mm -hmm. and he was you know he cited pistol squats as something that's really helped him yeah he psyched on him yeah totally and i can only remember ever trying to do pistol squats once in my life before this okay and i think i think that i was able to do them at least on my right leg when i tried them before but i don't think i was able to do them on my left leg but anyway i decided to try a few during this short workout that I did before we hopped on the phone. And, um, yeah, I was just doing them in my bedroom, like on the carpet. And, um, 
I can't really do them <laughs> barefoot. <laughs> I don't know if they if they're any easier with shoes on, but um, I just I have long, kind of not that powerful legs, I guess. Okay. Or I don't know what exactly the deal is. Maybe I just don't have super strong knees. Yeah, it could be a stability thing. It could be, yeah. I, I'm I'm always like a little bit afraid to do like really low squats too. Huh. So maybe there's like a psychological component where I like won't allow myself to try super hard. But I fall just getting down to like the full seated position too. Okay. Half the time. Yeah. And then once I'm down there, it's like extremely difficult to stand back up. So. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I need to tr- just try try them outside with like a shoe on, with shoes on or something. But but yeah, today's pistol squat challenge did not did not go so well. <laughs> but it's something to something to work on. Another thing to work on. Are you gonna stick to with them? Better at. I mean, it would be cool. Like, it would be cool to just know that my legs are like stronger and more powerful. Uh huh. And it's just like a fun little party trick to be able to do. You can just like bust them out anywhere. Mm-hmm. Can you do pistol squats? Uh, have, I, you, have you tried? I can, yeah. I fall nice. into the category, though, where I hear someone like Jonathan say something like, oh, yeah, I'm super into pistol squats. Like, I think they're awesome. And I'm like, oh, sick, I should do pistol squats. And then before I know it, I'm doing, like, three days a week of pistol squats, and it's, like, cutting <laughs> into my climbing. So I've gotten quite good at a lot of things that probably haven't helped me climb harder. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. and it was funny. I mean, you sent me a text right after that, and you're like, oh, dude, I'm hella weak. You said something like that. And I was like, well, I mean, not in any of the ways that matter. <laughs> I mean, if, you're, <laughs> if your resume is any indication, you're, you're doing quite well. So I see someone like you and I'm like, man, maybe I should stop doing all these things that I kind of gravitate towards and, uh, you know, take some pages out of Ethan's book. Well, it's funny because I, so I've only listened to one episode of The Nugget so far. I want to listen to more, but I was scrolling through your Instagram today and you have like the little graphic of the overview of each person's episode and someone's episode, one of the little like descriptors in one of those graphics for someone's episode said like climbing more, like don't emphasize training too much. And mm. I was like, Oh, this, this was seems it, to be a theme. Will Stanhope maybe? It was Will. Or I think, well, I did look at Will's. Yeah. I, it might've been Will's. Yeah. That certainly came up with him. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think that, Practice, like Jonathan said in his episode, practice is really important. So, but with at the same time, like for me, I think I've had enough practice at this point. <laughs> okay, I should, yeah. I should probably do like a few super dedicated training cycles if I want to improve my climbing. Interesting, that's like my goal. Yeah. Okay, I've never done a full dedicated training cycle, right? Like in the gym, doing you know half a dozen things only for six weeks or whatever, like, mm-hmm. like most pro climbers have done or do. Mm-hmm. I've pretty much only ever climbed. And so a lot of that has been training in its own right, I guess, you know, like if you spend a winter in Waco, like that's training. If you spend two weeks in Rodear or a month in Seuss, like that's definitely like specific types of training, but um, it's not like max hang weighted hangs or plyometrics on the campus board or whatever, you know, it's, sure. like, it's not the stuff that like comp climbers do to train. Do you feel like you've plateaued in your climbing? I think I have. Yeah. Okay. 
at least with strength, obviously there are some peaks and valleys, some small peaks and valleys. Like sometimes I'm like, oh, I feel pretty fit right now. You know, I feel like I'm psyched about that, you know? And then other times I'm like, oh, I feel a little not as healthy right now or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think for the most part, my strength has stayed. I don't think I've made any big gains in my strength for 13 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Jonathan had a great takeaway. We were having this conversation about training and we were talking about training versus, you know, he actually referenced you and Chris, like what you guys do is just heard that. try really, really hard. And, you know, his kind of takeaway was like, you know, maybe it's just whatever you need to do to get yourself to that try hard place. And for some people yeah, that's right. easier in the gym or on the hangboard. And for some people right. they can do that outside. And I, th I think, you know, I've been reflecting on that a lot because I'm kind of at this point where I'm realizing like, I'd probably make a lot more improvements in my climbing if I practiced the skill of trying hard outside every time I go outside. Whereas it seems like that's really what you have mastered in the, in those last 13 years of, you know, where maybe you haven't gotten stronger, but you're just learning how to like get a little bit more out of your strength each season. And each yeah. Year. I mean, I think that, I think that what I've probably improved upon most in the last 13 years is, strategy for projecting okay efficiently like figuring out how to come up with better beta faster than i used to hmm. and you know understanding my mind a little bit better about you know how long to take breaks during a session and what to try and always trying new beta um like not getting stuck trying the same difficult thing yeah i mean learning how learning how to try hard efficiently is its own sort of practice mm -hmm. so i think that i'm i'm good at that but it's funny because yeah i heard jonathan say that in the podcast last night and i was like i've had this thought a lot over the last few years about how i almost never give it a hundred percent interesting like i you know i've been climbing since i was eight years old and i've been trying hard i've I like started learning how to try really hard and climbing when I was probably like nine, 10, when I started doing comps like, and I started sport climbing. So I know how to climb efficiently, but I feel like Jimmy Webb and other people, some other people in sort of that strata of the performance spectrum, they like know how to give a hundred percent, like almost every time they pull on the wall, mm -hmm. they don't have to like test out moves four or five times before they like, commit to them fully mm. nathaniel coleman is really like that too when you watch him in comps like there's no hesitation totally he just flings himself at these wild dinos but he does it really gracefully and really confidently that you'd never know that he was even really trying but um i feel like for me i can probably count the number of times that i've given it a hundred percent on like two hands in my in, in the last 10 years or something wow. like basically what i what i'm really good at is learning learning a climb so well that i can do it with you know 75 to 90 percent effort huh. <laughs> <laughs> like i'm really good at figuring out better beta uh-huh i'm really good at knowing how to move my body up the wall in an efficient manner and I'm not good at like crimping the living hell out of super small holds, hmm. you know? And maybe that's something that I could, that I could improve upon. Like when I did jumbo love 
I think I climbed it with probably 99% psychological effort. Okay. Like it was, it was everything I had. It was, it required everything I had to like keep my shit together the whole way up the route and like stay calm the whole way up the route. But I like, I was calm the whole way up the route. Like I never was out of control. You know, I was never mm. like, Oh, I'm getting a little pumped. I better like regrip this hold and just like try really hard on this move. I was like flowing up the whole thing, hmm. like total flow state, you know? That's really interesting that, I mean, I definitely am someone who I, I think a trap for me is I really want things to feel a certain way. I really like yeah. the feeling of climbing well and climbing fluidly and gracefully. And yeah. I think that holds me back from exactly what you're describing, you know, just like dropping the clutch and just bearing down and trying as hard as you possibly can sometimes, especially on a route, like on a sport climb. Mm. I'm better at doing that, like pulling my butt off the ground on like a hard sit start, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to flow up the wall on a rock right. climb. Right, me too. Is that part I of mean, it? I think, I think that's part of it for me because... I mean, I, I always messed around in the bouldering area when I was growing up, and I definitely started bouldering outside like when I was pretty young. But I definitely delved deep into a practice of like sport climbing first. Okay. So I think that an emphasis on like when I was really young, you just like go a muerte every time you like step off the ground, basically. And if you're if you're like a sport climber and you want to get to the top of the sport climb like really really bad, then you your body gets tired, but you figure out just like how to keep climbing, you know. And so you figure out how to climb efficiently like really fast. Mm -hmm. Basically, you're like not allowing yourself to like say take or let go of the wall, and you're just like I'm gonna fight to the death up this thing. And then you're you get all tired and wobbly, and you just like start drop kneeing everywhere, and you know relying super heavily on your heels and your toes and you, so you learn how to climb efficiently i think that's always been like a part of my climbing practice and like when i pull on to super hard boulders oftentimes i mean sometimes if i prepare a ton then i can like flash sort of hard things but normally if it's like really hard like v12 and above the hardest moves on problems like that i have to like sort of test out a little bit mm, you know i have to like pull I kind of have to get the feel of them. It's almost like a skate trick where you see hmm. these pro skaters like sort of try a trick, but they're like bailing, uh -huh. bailing and bailing. And then yeah. they're like, okay, I'm going to commit to it. And then they fully commit and they stick it. Yeah. Or they fully commit and they like get close to the rack or whatever, you know? <laughs> right. But like, and that happens to me in bouldering too. Like I've, you know, I try fire off the top of stuff all the time, but like, I don't know, you know, it's like for me, I feel like I, I sort of have to test out moves until I sort of know I can do it and then I commit fully and then I dial it in and repeat the move a bunch of times so that it's like, so that I can do it efficiently. Basically. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I kind of, I feel like I fall into that same, I, I have that same small blockade mm -hmm. about trying super duper hard. Like every time I pull on the wall. I mean, that is the game of sport climbing, right? Is like, how do I use as little energy as possible, but then to really climb anything that's, truly hard for you it's it's you have to be able to do that but then you have to be able to flip that switch and kind of be able to do both you know and just shift back and forth immediately between the two totally yeah yeah i think that i've spent so much of my time on climbing trips projecting hard routes in the past five years that i haven't you know it's like you have a you, you have a certain fight when you're like on siding or flashing something 
that you don't really get when you're trying something near limit. Hmm. I feel like, I don't know. Like I haven't had as many opportunities. I feel like I haven't had as many opportunities to like fight a muerte on stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I mean, sport climbing near your limit is totally like that. You're like resting your way up the route and then you get to the crux and just turn it on and try as hard as you can. I'd like to pivot with that. I'd love to talk about the nest. It's interesting with you when I was prepping for this. I mean, there's you've done so much across so many different disciplines. It was really hard to decide what to talk to you about. You know, going into this, I kind of felt like, okay, the nest. Yeah, he did that a while ago. Maybe it's kind of old news. But I listened to a conversation that you had with Neely Quinn. I think you were on Mm. the Training Beta podcast like in 2016. This is some years ago. And you and I had talked on the phone recently in in prep for this, and something really uh, stood out to me from that conversation. So when you were talking to her, and this is 2016, you were saying that you were in Vegas at the time. You were trying the nest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think you had spent three days the year before, and you had already spent 10 days that year while you were talking to her. Yep. And then I was just that really stood out to me because on the phone when we talked recently, I think you said it took you 50 days. <laughs> you know, I'm listening to this conversation. And it like kind of sounds like you're close. And it was really funny. She asked you, you know, she's like, OK, so like, how does this thing compare to, to Jumbo Love? It's not really in the same league as that. Right. And you're like, oh, yeah, you know, Jumbo took me 40 days. And this is a, a quote. You said, I have quite a bit of catching up to do before I get to Jumbo Love levels. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was fascinating to me to, to uh, realize, no. like, oh, my God, he did. He got. Yeah, I surpassed, <laughs> I surpassed the number of days I spent on Jumbo. Right. On the nest. Yeah. Well, it's funny because my progress on the nest, at first it came really fast. Like, I, you know, I spent, you know, two or three days or whatever the very first winter I ever tried it. And I did all the moves. And then that second winter... I think it was the same winter that I recorded the interview with Neely early on in the winter, like my first or second day on it, I did the stand. Okay. And I was like, fuck, like all I have to do is like link a V11 into this or whatever. I mean, that that's still hard, but the stands V what V13. Yeah. Okay. V13, something like that. And so I, I thought I was going to do it. I remember too, Ty Landman, my friend um, Mark Heal and Ty Landman were up at the nest the day that I did the stand for the first time. I remember Ty being like, you are going to do this. Hmm. And he said it with such confidence that it made me feel like I was going to do it soon. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> and then, so I started trying from the bottom after that. And I was really surprised how much harder it was to, you know, do this kind of cruisy crimp climb into this pretty hard like iron cross move to get to the stand like how much that added to the stand Mm -hmm. and you know i was just projecting the hell out of it when i talked to neely i think i was probably starting to get close to doing the whole thing and then the end of that first season i had built up so much strength on it that i was i was super close like i i peeled off of the last move of the crux from the start for a few days like I was, I barn doored off the wall with my hands on the hold where you basically just like oh. do this one short move to a jug and then you exit the climb. Oh man. So I was super close, or at least I felt like I was super close with that original beta that I was using. And then the season, it got warm and I had other trips planned, so I had to leave. 
And then the next season, it kind of took me a while to like build the strength back up or something. Plus Mm -hmm. I was still using that old beta the way that Jimmy did it. And then eventually same thing happened. Like I got to the point where I was almost doing the whole thing from the start. But then I think, I don't know, I had a series of small misfortunes that season that kept requiring me to leave Vegas and come back for like leave Vegas for brief periods and come back. So my season was fairly interrupted that, that year. Mm -hmm. So that was season two. And then that season it got, it got hot and I gave up. George Bruce Wilson was actually filming me at the end of that season. And like, we were up there at, you know, I was giving red point burns at like, you know, 10, 11 midnight. It was mm-hmm. like super late at night, <laughs> just hanging out three and a half miles from the car. And then, <laughs> but then it did get too hot. And so I was like, oh, well, there's another, another season in the bucket. And so I come back for the third season and I couldn't even do, I could barely do the stand like half the time. Like it felt like a totally different problem. I don't know if it was my skin or my strength or the conditions or what, but, um, but yeah, I just like could barely. And then there were days when I went up there early on in the season, I just couldn't even do the moves in isolation. Hmm. Yeah. And it was, I think it's just the way with that beta that I was using, it was just super friction dependent Hmm. and in this sort of mysterious way that I could never really figure out like why, but, um, I still had some fairly close tries on it that season. Plus, I think it had been so much time at that point that I was, it was just a total psychological dead mess. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I was, you know, I just had some serious, like, after you've tried something for 30, 40 plus days, you have so much failure to reinforce this notion mm. that you, like, might not be able to do it. And so mm-hmm. I'm sure that was part of it. But then Faku showed up, Facundo, who did the fourth or fifth percent of it. Okay. He showed up and did it like super fast that season. And I was like, oh my God, am I ever going to do this problem? (laughs) And he had used the bump beta. So I was like, oh, maybe I should try the bump beta again. And I think I might've even tried it. I was like, God, it still feels impossible. Like, how can I not do this other beta? And then Keenan showed up. And he was doing the bump beta. I saw him do it like a few times and he made it look fairly easily. And I was like, oh my God, I have to do this. Like I have to figure out how people are doing this goddamn move. And so one night after Keenan left, I just stayed with a couple other friends and um, figured out the bump. And I was like, this thought occurred to me, like maybe if I just mantle the right hand a little bit that Hmm. I'll be able to get the distance. And sure enough, it worked. Like I did the move on my next try. Can you describe what you mean by that? Mantling your hand? So the crux move on the nest, if you do the big bump beta, is basically you have this kind of slippery, rounded crimp with like a small in-cut crack in the back of it. And you're crimping that with your right hand. And then you lock off. You do a big lock off to this side pull pinch. And then your left foot is kind of way out left. It's not quite to the height of your hand, but it's maybe like, a foot and a half or two feet lower than the height of your hand. So your body is kind of sideways, Mm -hmm. um, but the wall is still overhanging. So it's not like you can just straight mantle it, but basically what you do is you sag down a little bit and then you do the bump move with your left hand. But as you're throwing your left hand up, you're still pushing with your right hand. You like, for me, it was like super important that I was like 
mindful to keep pushing with my right hand. Okay. And every time I reminded myself to keep pushing with my right hand, I would stick the move like every time. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. It's Interesting. Crazy. It's a really cool move that way. It feels so satisfying to stick. It's like this weird like gym move or something. Like huh. I've never done a move like that outside except on this problem. Huh. And it just clicked. Like it clicked so well. And then I went back to the nest and I was able to just like basically run laps on the stand. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I'd never That's been amazing. able to do that. And I was like, oh my God, this is the way. Like for sure this is the way. Yeah. And then it still took me like seven or eight sessions after that because I was just so I just had such psychological blockades with it i think i just needed to I, I needed so much work to like talk myself back into the to make the decision to do it basically interesting do you think it was just yeah. that it wasn't a physical limitation or i mean i think with the original method that i was trying the jimmy method uh -huh. it i'm not exactly sure why i never did it that way because i came so close like so many times mm -hmm. and i stuck with it for seasons because i had gotten so close mm-hmm and then with the big bump method, it was just like, I think it was friction played a far smaller part in the success or failure of it. And also maybe even like strength, like power and finger strength and everything. Like the Jimmy method was like really, really powerful. And you had to hold all this tension and stuff and just be so strong on the left hand pinch. But with the new method, it was more like about commitment and of, of course, there were elements of like strength and, and friction and stuff like I would get tired and I wouldn't be able to do it anymore sometimes. But like it was just much less about the physical dif difficulty as it was the psychological difficulty. OK, but it's like, you know, with any project, if you hold on to the belief somewhere in the back of your head that you can do it and you just keep trying, eventually you'll do it. Like mm. eventually you'll just have it so, so dialed that it would be completely silly to argue with yourself about the fact that you can do it you know and i think i i think i had to get there hmm. in order to do it you know i had to i had to like believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that i could just do it and then it was funny because when i the day that i or the night that i did it really it really just was like a decision you know like i had i wow. got to the crux with the same amount of energy that i've gotten there probably 50 or 100 times you know uh -huh. yeah. but like yeah maybe not with the new beta but like i remember it's funny my my phone i was facetiming my ex-girlfriend stacy and my phone was just sitting in my shoe and she was like watching from la besides okay. that i was by myself uh -huh. but i remember getting to the crux and like approaching the crux I was like thinking about stacy watching me in my shoe and i was like you know what i think i can just do it this time and then i just did it <laughs> oh wow that's amazing yeah yeah, huh. so it really just was like a decision. Huh. And I had almost like two tries earlier, I had stuck the crux from the ground, which I'd never done before, and I fell like on the last move, basically. Okay. So I knew like it was pretty clear that I could just do it any any try. Uh -huh. It was a total like split-second decision that I'd sort of just made to do it. <laughs> but sometimes it just takes, you know, it takes 50 days of torment and agony to really really talk yourself into <laughs> into doing something so the reason i really wanted to bring it up because it, it is because of that that's really fascinating to me and there were a couple things yeah. there were a couple questions that just came to mind listening to you talk to neely you guys got into a really interesting discussion about putting a lot of tries into something and i won't really mm -hmm. i don't want to make you repeat your philosophy or your thoughts on that you guys got into that 
in quite a lot of detail and I would just point people to that conversation. But I would love to know, you know, coming out on the other side of this thing, finally doing it, 50 days invested in it. I have a couple questions. Do you think it yeah. made you a better climber? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of my big takeaways was like having crappy days on a project on a long-term project where you make reverse progress is totally fine and totally normal, you hmm. know, cause it's really easy to get super discouraged by that. I think we're all hoping for our trajectory of project of progress to keep going up, you know? And it's like when we have days or weeks or seasons of reverse progress or plateaus or whatever, like it doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means that you know, you probably haven't figured out the best beta yet, or you probably haven't built up enough strength and confidence to do it yet. Hmm. I think that was one of my biggest takeaways was just like approaching future projects, keeping in mind the fact that it just takes time. And it's never taken even close to that much time before, except for Jumbo Love, like before or after, uh -huh. <laughs> fortunately, but like, yeah, it's, you know, sometimes it's just, it just, yeah, if you, if you hold on to that belief that you can do it, like eventually you will do it. It's interesting to hear you describe that it sounds like you felt like you got stronger the more you tried it in a way. It makes me wonder, would you go back and, and approach it differently? Would you change anything to how you approach the nest in hindsight, if you could go back and change something? You know, it's funny because I feel like one of my greatest strengths as a climber is the ability to try a whole bunch of different stuff but not trying a whole bunch of different stuff in this situation was exactly why it took me as long as it did like if i would have committed to trying to figure out that bump method in my first season of doing it because paul had already done it that way i don't know if nolly had done it that way but he was like he knew that that was the way he was going to do it like if i had tried that beta more i think from the beginning, then I might have I might have done it in a season or two. Mm -hmm. I, I think I didn't. The reason I didn't try it, or I didn't commit to trying it, to trying to figure the bump beta out sooner, was because I I never saw anyone like do it right in front of my face. It took Keenan coming and just like hiking it that way to make me realize like, oh, that just must be the easiest way, you know, like. Hmm four out of the six people who climbed this now did it that way. Like that's the prevailing beta. And sometimes that's what it takes. It's like monkey see monkey do. <laughs> Interesting. You know, it's yeah. like, it's, it's funny how these breakthroughs are made on projects sometimes, because sometimes you'll just be like working something with someone else and like they'll have a quirky idea or all of a sudden some light bulb will go, go off in your head and you're like, what if I just like try this way? And it might seem crazy, but what if I try it? And then it works and you're like, Oh wow. Like, I've had breakthroughs like that after trying projects. Well, on the nest, it was like two seasons of trying beta that I didn't end up using. But when I was in Spain on El Bon Combat with Felipe, you know, I had my beta for the crux and he had his beta and I could do my beta on the crux. Like I could even link some climbing into it, but coming from the ground, I could never do it. And then I even stopped to try different stuff out there like several times, you know, several times I would be like, all right, I'm going to, find better beta for this goddamn move and <laughs> i would sit there and try different stuff and nothing seemed to work any better than what i was doing and it wasn't until i had tried it for a month 
that I finally had this epiphany. Like, what if I just stagger my feet like the opposite way that I've been staggering them? What if I get my left foot high and, you know, generate from the right foot over my left foot. And then the first time I did that move, I was like, Oh my God, that's the way. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck, (laughs) I've been trying the wrong way for a month, Uh Um, but that's just what it takes sometimes, you know, and, and for stuff that's below your limit, you don't need that much time to fix. Like you don't need to use the perfect beta to send something, you know, like Jakob Schubert can climb nine B with pretty shitty beta. I'm just going to say it. Like I, he probably thinks his beta is amazing, but like he never uses knee pads. He like never, he never really need bars that much. Probably if he does it, he's doing it with like jeans on, you right. know? And it's like he, his beta is probably not that great, but it's like nine B is below his limit. Uh-huh. 9c is probably below his limit you know like maybe he tried perfecto mundo for i don't know how long he tried it but if it was anything less than a month he probably didn't have like the master beta mm. you know the master beta by the way is this is this phrase that dave graham coined that i really like mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That is really interesting. So after the nest, you went back to Red Rocks. I don't really know the time frame. I'd love to hear when in relation to the nest this was. But you went back and you did Kintsugi? Yeah. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, Kintsugi. And it it seems like, at least my perception, is that one went a lot smoother for you. It it wasn't nearly the epic that the nest was. Definitely not. No, I did Kintsugi in like, I think, four sessions the winter I did it. Oh, wow. And that's V15 as well. Yeah. So I would say no. Oh, interesting. For me, like with the beta that I use and the beta that Bryce used and the beta that Pablo used, we all use the same beta. It's probably V13. Oh, wow. With like a, with like a, maybe like a V14, like psychological difficulty. Cause the crux is pretty high and the nature of the crux moves are really committing, but physical difficulty only taking into account like the pure physical difficulty, I would say it's no harder than V13. The oh, way that I did it okay. and the way that we did it. The way that Jimmy did it and the way that Nolly did it and maybe even the way that Keenan did it too, it might be V14 slash 15 or just V15 because they did it like a super heinous, like super heinous ways. Gotcha. So there's uh, a really... I was so lucky, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was just lucky that I was able to make the like the karate kick move work. Yeah. So that just, yeah, I was about to ask about that. There's a really beautiful video of you doing that and I'll put it in the show notes. I think people should definitely watch it. And I think it's interesting to hear you say that you and those two other guys did the (laughs) same way. Cause I think in that video, you were maybe like the fifth or sixth person and every single Mm -hmm. person to that point had used different beta. Totally. Yeah. It's this funny little section of rock where there's just a bunch of really shitty holds basically. Okay. <laughs> so like the order that you grab them in and the order where that you use the wall, like the order that you use the different parts of the wall makes a really huge difference basically. Mm-hmm. One thing that stood out to me from that video as you were, you know, discovering the beta that was going to work for you was the ninja toe catch. And I, seeing you do that, I'm like, that's got to be the coolest rock climbing move I've ever seen anyone do. Is it the coolest rock climbing move you've ever done? 
I have to say it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like there are some big dinos that I've done on rock that are pretty cool, but that yeah. move is, that is probably the coolest move I've ever done. On Can rock. you try to describe I it? So fucking I cool. think people should just go watch it, but, um, but I'd love to hear you try to describe it. It's the coolest move I've ever done on rock because I think it's also the most committing move I've ever done on rock. Hmm. Like basically you, you do this funky sequence, like you jump start to a hold and then you, do a couple moves on good holds and then you do this funky stand-up move to this like you kind of rock halfway up over this heel to stand up to this little slot crimp and then you like put your hips to the wall and you rock way over the heel up and left to this side pole slopey edge thing okay and then you're kind of like stuck to the wall like sitting on your heel with this slot crimp and this side pole edge and you basically have to kick your toe way up and right into this little roof that's like facing away from you. Uh But in order to get the distance, in order to get your toe into the roof completely, you have to like your body and your hips need to be so far up and to the right. And so basically you just have to like, basically you just have to kick your right leg way up and right, like as far as you possibly can. Like that's the beta is actually just like committing 100% to kicking your foot and your leg up as much as you can. And and I found that if I looked where my leg was going, I couldn't get it as far. Like I couldn't <laughs> quite get the distance. Okay. So I actually, I actually had to like basically turn away. I wouldn't even look where my like leg was going. I would just like imagine it. Like I would just imagine kicking my foot and leg up as far as I possibly could. And then it would just like like right into the roof. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's funny because if you didn't, if you didn't commit to kicking your foot up as far as it goes, you wouldn't get the distance and you just like fall away from the wall. That's interesting. Like anything less than like a hundred percent commitment on that move was not enough for me. Like Got I it. had to just like commit fully to it. And then if I did that, I would pretty much do it every time. Hmm. And it was such an awesome feeling to like catch that toe. Oh my gosh. Loop. I, Cause then you're I just bet. like holding the tension on these shitty assholes and like <laughs> standing up on your left foot. And then you do this big move to the lift to this like awesome sloper uh-huh. and the rock on that climb is just oh, it's perfect. It looks it's perfect. Like, yeah. That's probably the sickest problem I've ever done. So I'll add a little bit of a, uh, of a description to that. I'll, or I'll do my best. So your left hand is kind of on a left facing side pull sloper thing. That's not enough mm-hmm. to hold you on the wall by itself. Mm-hmm. And as you stand up, it's only by, as you said, extending your right foot as far as it can possibly go out to the side to catch your toe on the underside of a roof and oppose mm-hmm. that left hand. That's the only way that you're able to to stick there and not just fly off the wall. Right. Totally. Because if you miss the toe, you just come barn dooring right off. Like mm-hmm. there's nothing to oppose the left hand besides the toe. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll link yeah, to the video. Was... People should go watch it. It's like the it's just got to be the coolest rock climbing move that's been done on rock. Yeah, it's up there for sure. Well, Ethan, I would love to uh to switch gears a little bit. Okay. Um it's it's you know, I've followed you for a long time and of course it's it's impossible to miss your climbing and your your many accomplishments across all the different disciplines. It seems like you're always doing something incredibly badass and it's always in a completely different style than what I saw the last time that you popped onto my feed. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Thanks, he man. climbed a V15. Oh, he climbed a 14C trad line. Oh, he climbed some big highball. <laughs> 
You know, and that's really inspiring. But one thing that I really have appreciated about you over the years and another, maybe the main reason why I'm especially inspired by you is it's impossible to follow you and not not notice your honesty and your willingness to be open and vulnerable and talk about the kind of the messiness of life and some of the things that, you know, happen behind the curtain that we don't get Mm -hmm. to see a lot of the time. You and I were talking on the phone earlier this week, and um, we had a really interesting conversation <clears throat> about your dad. I had I had followed you, and I'd read a little bit about it, and I had kind of a vague idea that your dad. Um, I thought your dad was sick. I didn't. I couldn't remember the specifics, but I knew that you'd been kind of caretaking for him. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, it, I, I'd love to hear you maybe just kind of speak to what's going on with your dad. And then I have a, um, a few more things that came out of that conversation that I'd love to circle back to, but, um, but yeah, I'd love to hear what's been going on with your dad. Yeah, for sure. So my dad on September 4th, 2013, my dad had a massive right hemisphere stroke. So he had a, like a blood clot in his brain in the right side of his brain that paralyzed his left side. So basically the entire left side of his body is like completely offline. I was sharing our apartment in San Francisco with him at the time. Um, my mom had, had moved out a couple of years earlier. So it was just us there. And um, I'd been gone all day, but I got home and yeah, found, found him on the floor and called an ambulance. And I could tell just from talking to him, what had happened sort of because he had had another stroke. He had, so that was like six and a half years ago when he had the the massive stroke that incapacitated him. But I think three or four years before that, he had had another stroke when him and my mom were on a vacation, like a windsurfing vacation in Venezuela. Um, So I kind of knew like what, you know, what had happened and stuff, but yeah, that was like, when I think about like major life changing events in my life, I think about um, discovering climbing when I was eight, you know, walking in the mission cliffs and, and how much discovering climbing changed the course of my life and who I am as a person, you know? And then I think the second big, big life changing event for me was, you know, walking, walking into my dad's bedroom and um, discovering him on the floor and, his stroke and stuff and just how much, you know, how much that, that changed me as a person and in the path of my life, I guess. Hmm. And, um, yeah, so he, he had that stroke in September of 2013 and his health is okay. It's not great, obviously, cause he's like wheelchair bound. But, um, after that happened, he was in a couple of different rehab hospitals for, you know, a few months, basically. And then once he sort of had overstayed his welcome at those facilities, we had to find uh, like a long-term care home for him. So he ended up at this, what's called a boarding care. It's basically like assisted living, except I think assisted living has like medical professionals on staff and boarding care is just, it's like caregivers and administrators and stuff. So he ended up at a boarding care in the Bay area and yeah, that's where he's lived for basically the last almost six and a half years now. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so I, I basically, you know, I, I spent a ton of time with him, like in the first 
few months and the first year. And were um, you kind of his care caretaker for a while there at the beginning? So I was never like his full time caregiver. Like uh -huh. when when he was in that first rehab hospital in Vallejo, like I was like living at the hospital with him basically. Uh huh. Like I I would sleep on the little fold out bed next to him and. I, I would still go, I like still went away, you know, on some short climbing trips and stuff here and there, but, um, I never went, I didn't go too far away for a while. And, um, but I would, you know, I basically would just like be his advocate. And if he needed anything that I would, I would get it for him. If he, if I, if I felt like I could do something that the nurses or the caregivers, um, didn't want to do or couldn't do or whatever, just like be there at his side, basically like normal like family member advocates would. And then once he got to the boarding care, you know, he has like a team of caregivers that, that tend to him that are there on call 24 seven, you know, at the facility. Um, but when I go, I basically just like do their job for them or help them do their job for the time that I'm there mm -hmm. and do stuff like, you know, take them out to meals, sometimes take them out to movies. Every once in a while, I'll like throw them in my car. It's a bit of an operation, but sometimes I'll throw them in my car and take them somewhere. Like I've taken them to different restaurants around the Bay Area. And um, a couple of times I've taken them like over to my mom's house in Pinal. But at the facility, I'll also like give him baths and shave his face and brush his teeth and do his nails, clip his nails and just try to like keep them looking healthy and feeling okay hmm. and uh yeah so that's like you know half my life is being a professional climber and traveling and stuff and then the other half is like yeah kind of dedicated to my dad i wouldn't say that the time like time wise i spend much more time climbing and traveling and living my life than i do like at his side and it varies week to week and month to month. Like sometimes I'll go to his boarding care three or four times a week. And sometimes I'll go like once a month, you know, mm -hmm. um, I haven't seen him up close, obviously, since the quarantine started because mm. visitors aren't allowed at his boarding care. But um, but yeah, I would be there a lot more if, if I could go and help him and stuff. Do you have a favorite activity that you do with your dad nowadays um hmm. i mean i i like taking him out i think every time i go i try to get him outside of his boarding care just to get some sun and some fresh air and just like remind him what the outside world feels like because he never he never leaves basically mm -hmm. if i if i don't go and take him out um so we go out to meals, like we have our little, like our favorite restaurants and stuff. Um, we go out to movies. That's, that's fun. It's hard. You know, it's like, I, sometimes, sometimes I feel distracted when I'm with them. Like sometimes I'm like having conversations on my phone or whatever. And I think just like being as present as I can be with him is the most fulfilling thing, hmm. you know? Yeah, so I feel like it doesn't matter that much what we do as long as I, I'm, like, present with him, you know? Like, we can have – I can have a good time, I should say. We, I won't say we can have a good time, but I can, I can have a good time doing anything for him, you know? It's mm -hmm. like doing 
like cleaning them up in the bathroom or giving them a bath or whatever it is we're doing. Like sometimes it feels like a good time. It's almost like a, like with a child, you know, it's like, it's fun to sort of play their game, whatever game they want to play or whatever, however they want to like think about things or talk about things. It's fun to just like agree with children. And my dad is kind of like my child now. So it's, you know, it's like if he, I don't know, it's, it's so much easier to go along with whatever than like resist him or like scold him for not like trying harder or whatever. Hmm. I don't know. So that's, I, I think I, I'm not really answering your question about what activity is, is the most fun, but, um, but yeah, I think, I don't know. Bringing him out to meals is fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think you... he, his, yeah, his attention span is, is like pretty short though. So okay. we, sometimes we do go to movies, but then he like, he might start to get tired and, and sleepy Okay. Two thirds or three quarters of the way through a movie and asked to leave before the ending. Gotcha. Um, do you, do you strategically target bad movies that you're not going to be bummed if you have to walk out on? <laughs> <laughs> the last movie that I brought him to was so bad. It was, um, oh man. Fantasy Island. Fantasy Island. It was like, I, I think it's actually a remake, okay. but it's the new one with that, that, um, Mexican actor Michael Pena. I think his name is Michael Pena. Oh, He's in like the totally. Narcos Mexico uh-huh. season. But um it was awful. Oh, but too I, bad. You know, it's like for <laughs> my like I said before, part of my personality is like really wanting to finish things. Uh-huh. And even if like a TV show or a movie is like really bad, <laughs> I still want to finish it. So I think he did ask to leave the movie early and I was like, no, we're we're sticking out dead. Sorry. We're gonna finish this. But it was so bad. Movie. We could have we it did not enrich my life. That is hilarious. Too bad. I really like Michael Pena. I think he's a great actor. I know, mm-hmm. I know. I like him too. Yeah. He, so he, I think he was just yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Michael Pena. No, it's it's not <laughs> talking about Michael Pena is, <laughs> is not important. We don't want to waste people's time with that. So you said a couple really interesting things as we were having this conversation a couple of days ago about your dad and I wrote a, I wrote them down and I'd love to um I'd love to share a couple of quotes from you and then hear your take on it. So you said, you know, speaking about experiencing everything that happened with your dad and watching him go through it, it was, you know, rather than losing someone and you know, someone who's lost their life, something like that that's a little bit more definitive, it was kind of like this slow drawn out grief. And mm-hmm. you said it was the most heartbreaking thing I had ever encountered in my life. And you, a little bit later in our conversation, you said something really interesting. You said, I accessed a new part of myself. Can you speak to that? Yeah, sure. Of course. Um, and just to back up a little bit, I guess, obviously if you lose like a family member or a friend, it's extremely tragic and, and heartbreaking and, um, you know, there's, there's a process of grief and stuff, but it's like you said, it is definitive. And, um, in my dad's situation, it's kind of like he lost so much of himself, but then he's still alive, you know? So the thing that my, my grief counselor lady calls it is chronic grief Hmm. where you have some sort of ongoing source of grief where it's not like there's a definitive ending to it. And after my dad had a stroke, 
there were a few months where I was really sad, but I think I was also just kind of freaked out and I was scared and I don't think I had really tried very much to like to investigate like the sadness and the heartbreak of it. Like I was kind of just like going through the motions of helping take care of him and helping facilitate this and that for him. And I remember the the girl that I was with at the time, like one way or another, she sort of helped me a little bit, like look within myself and, um, you know, it's funny. It's like, we can see sad things and heartbreaking things all the time, but like, oftentimes we don't feel super affected by them, but then sometimes you like, you kind of look within yourself and just see where you're holding, where you're holding grief, where you're holding sadness and heartbreak and stuff. And I remember, I remember the first time I ever felt that like dagger of, of sadness pierce me, like where I really felt like, Oh my God, like my dad, like his kind of his life is over in a way, you know, it's like, he's lost so much. I thought about everything that he did before his stroke, like snowboard through the trees in Tahoe and ride his bike a hundred miles and walk to Ars Mendes to get bread and pastries and hmm. stand outside our house, just talking to random people that would walk down the street. And, um, that's like, he can't do any of that anymore. You know, like he pretty much can't do any of the things he loves anymore. And the first time, like, I, <clears throat> sorry. The first time I really like allowed that to penetrate, I felt like a part of my, myself, my heart, if you will, that I'd never felt before. Hmm. And because I've, you know, it's like we see sad things on the news all the time and everyone loses somebody, you know, in the course of their life or maybe multiple people. And even sad things can happen right in front of us. Like I found my dad on the floor and it took me months to really feel like to really feel like heartbroken for him hmm. but um when i finally did it was like i had never felt that like depth of sadness before like it was it was like a dagger like piercing my heart but what i learned was that so a couple things a couple things happened i think in that moment and in those moments when you like allow yourself to feel heartbroken about something sometimes you also allow yourself to feel heartbroken about other things and one of the other things that i sort of realized that i've been heartbroken about for my whole life was like the level of like self-hate and self-criticism that I'm capable of inflicting hmm. on myself. And I think that was like that self-hate and that self-criticism. I guess like I had never given myself a chance to grieve over the toll that my own self-hate and self-criticism had taken on me. 
you know it's like it's a shocking thing though to like discover you know you're like oh my god like i've inflicted so much pain on myself and it's like when you allow yourself to feel a really profound pain for one thing then you can start to feel it for other things you know like i and so the other major thing that i discovered in feeling this this profound sadness for my dad was that it opens me up like as deep as that dagger cuts into me like into my heart that's a new depth in which i can feel open in which i can feel love pour out of basically hmm. Oh, wow. And so I had never felt I had never felt that level of that depth of sadness before, but I had also never felt that that depth of of love and acceptance, and it's just like universal. Like I feel like when people talk about like universal love, I don't know what they feel, but to me the feeling that I'm talking about now is universal love. Hmm. Like that's like, that's as close to true love as I've ever felt. And when I feel that, when I feel that open, um, I feel love for everything and everyone. Hmm. It's like, it's not just, you know, for my dad and appreciating like our relationship and, and the life that he's given me and everything that he's taught me and, and how much, you know, I admire him, but like all my family, all my friends, everyone, you know, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's the most profound feeling I've ever experienced times 10, I'd say. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like, it's a gift. I think the thing that I realized once I allowed that, that heartbreak for my dad's situation to, to penetrate was, I was like, oh, this is this is a gift. Like, this is something that I feel so grateful to be able to experience. And I know, like, I know that not many people get to feel this way, but I would never would have felt this way if I wouldn't have been faced so closely with this, this tragedy, you know, this, like this huge loss that, that we experienced. And even people that do oftentimes, you know, I think people are just really walled up, you know, people are really, people are really good at escaping or deflecting or burying pain and not paying attention to it. Huh. And I think that's one of the saddest things to me. I honestly think that that's like one of the reasons that like humans have so many problems. <sighs> Yeah. It's because we use we turn our pain into anger and defensiveness and and all these other things, you know. Instead of sitting with it. Yeah, instead of instead of sitting with it. And it's definitely not easy, you know. I think it takes some effort. Like it takes me less and less effort every time I feel it, but like sometimes I just wanna feel deeply, you know, and it doesn't take like I just, yeah, think about my dad sitting in his boarding care, like all by himself day after day. Like this person who raised me, 
who gave me so much, some like taught me so many lessons and um, introduced me, helped introduce me to the outdoors and um, gave me so much, you know, just like with such a low quality of life now. Mm -hmm. Another thing that you said when we were on the phone before is that this whole thing has opened up a new level of compassion and spirituality mm-hmm. for you. Do you remember what you meant by that? Um, I mean, definitely like the, I, I feel this immense compassion when I feel that open that I never, it's, it sort of goes hand in hand with, with being able to feel this new profound, like openness and love that I have and, you know, sadness and heartbreak. Like, I feel like compassion goes along with that too. And, you know, in those moments where I feel as open as I, as I ever have, I feel less afraid, you know, I feel less afraid of death. I feel, I don't feel worried about things like I feel more accepting I mean I think that it's just like helped me grow in a lot of ways Mm. and and be more accepting of things in general you know having to accept this really like devastatingly difficult situation like forces me to think about or at least try to accept other sort of difficult situations and heartbreaks and stuff. You were speaking about experiencing this grief, kind of the greatest heartbreak that you'd encountered in your life, how that allowed you to experience this other grief of realizing how horrible you've been to yourself in the past. Has that new level of compassion, have you been able to extend that to yourself as well? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I think that's kind of where it starts. Yeah. You know, it's like, um, it starts with having compassion for myself. I don't know. It's, it's funny. It's, it's kind of hard to put words to it, but it's definitely addressing that pain of, like I said, like the toll it's that my self hate and self criticism has taken on me, like addressing that it kind of forces me to, sometimes I can like, play this trick on myself where I imagine like a family member or someone that I love saying all the things to me that, (laughs) you know, that like I want to hear in order to like grant myself the compassion. It it feels a little bit self-indulgent, but it's definitely another tool that I have to like open myself up a little bit. That just sparked something, Ethan. Did you write about that yeah. and your process of doing that when you were when you sent Lorena Mora? I actually did, yeah. yeah <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> I really enjoyed reading that. I'm gonna try to find that to share with people. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. Um yeah, that was that was actually how I sent that route. So like I was in Spain for six weeks, like beating myself like beating my head against Lorena Mora. I mean, obviously it wasn't like tormenting the whole time, but there was this period of about 10 days or maybe even more where I had this huge breakthrough attempt. Actually, Calouse was blaming me and I <laughs> fell 
I basically fell pulling the lip above the last draw. Oh, man. Right. So I, I like, I couldn't, I literally could not have fallen after that. You're like standing on the slab <laughs> and you do like two more moves and you clip the anchors. Right. Yeah. So I, I couldn't have fallen any higher basically, but I still like, I kept going back to the thing day after day and I was falling lower and not getting back up to that point and just feeling really like at odds with the climb and with myself. And I think just like, knowing that I could do it, but not doing it is just so tormenting, which I feel like is a stage that I get to with a lot of my hardest projects. And, um, on my last day, I just sort of gave up. Like I was like, I have to be okay with, with walking away from this. Like it's a, it's not going to happen. You know, I don't know if I said like, it's not going to happen, but I was like, I just, I have to be okay. This is like, this is me trying to be okay with, leaving Spain after six weeks and not doing this route. I sort of looked back on the last two weeks or month or whatever that I'd been there and how kind of tormented I'd been over trying this route and not doing it. I mean, it's, it seems so silly in hindsight. You're like, how can someone be so tormented over a fucking rock line? You know, it's like, so it just doesn't make much sense, but I mean, we've all been there, right? Absolutely. Um, I don't know if, everyone goes quite to the depths that I do, <laughs> but like some people do, you know, in different ways, you know? And so I looked back on the time that I'd spent like in my own head. And also it had just been a difficult trip for other reasons. Like my ex and I were like sort of trying to, we were like, we had, before I left for Spain, you know, we had decided to, get back together and we were going to try to make it work. And then a friend who was also trying the route, like basically told me she had a crush on me. And so it was all complicated. And like, it was just like, I felt like such a mess and I felt like such a disaster over there. And, you know, for two weeks or a month, I had just been beating myself up so much over it. And I, I looked back on that time and I was like, Oh my God. Like basically I was like, that's heavy shit, dude. Like <laughs> kind of thinking about my own feelings as like an outsider and you know, it's, it, I think people are just really not great at giving themselves that sort of compassion. And so the trick that I play on myself and the trick that I played that day was like, I kind of imagined like having a conversation with my mom or my brother or my dad, maybe all three, like about, you know, them just asking me how I was doing and, allowing myself to say like not that good <laughs> and uh you know i've been really kind of tortured and and this and that and i just felt this like release like this huge release like all this weight like i just felt 50 pounds lighter so when i pulled on the wall i still felt 50 pounds lighter and i just like floated the root oh, basically wow. yeah and I just felt so heavy with all this baggage up until that point. I think that was part of the reason that I, I, I didn't do El Bon Combat when I was there a year ago. I just I felt really like I had a lot of baggage and I was never quite able to like release it. Also, I was using shitty beta for the crux. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a it's a pretty debilitating combination, I'd say. Yeah. 
<laughs> emotional baggage, bad beta. It's actually it's actually probably the most prevailing debilitation that's faced by climbers is is the combination of of baggage slash insecurities we can say and and bad beta. <laughs> I think that's that's. Um, I don't know if that's in one of Dave McLeod's nine out of ten climbers make the most mistakes book or in in Chris Hampton's new climbing book, but it should be. <laughs> <laughs> Version two, the updated right. edition two. Right. Yeah, will be a chapter about that. The kryptonite. I'll make my own climbing self-help book someday perfect we can, we can include that there we go okay don't steal it dave don't steal it chris ethan's gonna yeah ethan's gonna do it yeah. himself please perfect when we were talking on the phone i also asked you if there was anything that you wish you'd known at different stages in your life i always find that to be a really interesting question worth exploring and i'm always curious what pops up for people and I think one thing that you said maybe is a takeaway, and I'd love to hear kind of what stage at your life maybe you realize this and, and how it's evolved. But basically what you said is you finally learned the importance of balancing accepting people versus creating boundaries and, and how to think about when to do each of those things. Can you speak to that? Sure. Yeah. I don't remember what we talked about in our phone conversation before. Mm -hmm. But um, I think I think regarding like relationships, I'll, I'll add something. Go I think ahead. you were speaking to. I remember you saying in that conversation, it's easy to overextend yourself with friends and family, and I guess maybe to get a little bit more oh, tangible yeah. and zero in on something, I would just love to hear if there's anything that you've done, any practices that have helped you create boundaries. Mm. And to prevent yourself from overextending. I think that what has helped me overextend myself less, because I definitely still do it, is just noticing how fucking tired I am all the time. <laughs> and like, um, I only have so much energy to give. Hmm. And I definitely should be giving it way more of it to myself. I think that I am notoriously bad, actually, at, like, taking care of myself. And maybe that runs in the family because, yeah, my mom is a little bit of the same way. But I think that I'm really used to being there for other people more than I'm there for myself sometimes. And it's as I get older... And I just have less, a little bit less energy maybe, or I'm just, I feel the effects of my energy output a little bit more. I realize like I need to, I need to devote more energy to myself and to taking care of myself. And that sometimes means creating boundaries with, with friends or with family or with, you know, within relationships and stuff. Hmm. And I think, you know, we know, we know when we cross that line mm -hmm. in relationships where we're like, okay, maintaining this relationship is coming at such a huge cost to myself. You know, we've all been there, whether it's romantic relationships or with family or with friends, we can feel when we've crossed that line, I think. But I think when I was younger, it was easier to just exist on the other side of that line for longer periods of time. And now, I don't know, maybe I don't have as much patience or something, or I'm just like, 
I don't know. I know myself a little bit better and Hmm. maybe I'm, maybe I'm a little bit more curious about myself and my own needs and who I am than I am about other people, Hmm. but I still do it. I mean, I'm still like, you know, chatting with people on Instagram and like, it's just like, yeah, communicating with people way more than I need to. And, um, sometimes like I have meaningful conversations with people and a lot of like, sometimes it's just like chatter, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. and with family and stuff, especially with my dad, like I've noticed definitely in the last year I've noticed, Oh, I just, I don't think I need to go quite as often. Hmm. A couple things happen where a, it's like, it's easy to use him as an excuse to not (laughs) take care of more like stressful oh interesting more huh. other immediate things in my life yeah, you know sure. to sort of like defer creative projects or whatever other responsibilities or stress even by going and visiting him and taking care of him and i don't remember what the second thing was but that's i mean and and i think it's just like been so long now that i don't know i feel like i'm i'm examining what i get out of hanging out with him and helping him and stuff more since I've had, I've had a a lot more time away from him in the last year than I ever have before. And I think that I've realized like when I was living in El Paso this winter with my ex-girlfriend Kelly, I was like, wow, I, I feel relaxed on my rest days. Like I don't feel this compulsion to go to my dad and I don't feel as much guilt if I'm in the bear and I don't go see him, Hmm. you know? And I feel like that's, that's a much healthier place for me. And I, obviously I want to keep taking care of him and I want to keep seeing him, but I think that I can be a little bit more mindful now about when it's healthy for me. And, and if I'm, if I'm using him as a distraction from, from other things. Hmm. Is there anything that you've learned about communication in that? Is there anything you've changed in how you communicate with other people when you have to say no or when you have to put up some boundaries and kind of guard your your own energy? Um, <laughs> I'm I'm still pretty bad at it. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> I think it's really still, hard. I think it's incredibly I mean, hard. I mean, I think that like I really love connecting with people. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy for me to spend a long time, like talking to people and stuff. And and a lot of time it doesn't come to my detriment, but sometimes it does. And I'm still pretty bad at like, not, however, I'm putting myself out there for people or showing up for people or whatever. I'm still pretty, pretty terrible at, you know, at saying no, but I think, I think as I get older and I know myself better and I'm more aware of my desires and my aversions and my baggage and my trauma and my grief and my pain, whatever. It basically like the more I get to know myself, the more accepting I am of myself and the more I can sort of be honest with people about who I am. And I think if you can be honest with yourself, really honest with yourself, you can be like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm overextending myself or, or I'm, I'm, you know, in some way I should create boundaries or 
you know, be more honest with someone or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. because you're just like a little bit less of less afraid of, I feel like I'm slightly less afraid of my own nature than I was before. (laughs) (laughs) If that makes any sense. Yeah, I think it does. I'm, I'm kind of chuckling though. I I just, something just popped into my mind. Um, you know, when we were talking earlier, I had asked you just kind of a generic question of, is there anything you wish you'd known when you were younger? And I think you said you wished when you were like, you know, a junior high kid or a high school kid, you wished you had acted more adult like. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, I don't know. I think that's really hilarious because, you know, like at that age, there's no way you can know what you know that that makes you so adult like. But I wonder if it's, you know, exactly what you just spoke to. It just takes so long to really get comfortable enough with yourself maybe to to be able to communicate that sort of stuff openly totally yeah and (laughs) yeah i mean i i definitely wish that i was yeah just a little bit more mature and a little bit maybe more reserved and less of a less of a cut up than i was when i when (laughs) i was uh, a kid but um but yeah i think the the older you get the better you get to know yourself and hopefully the more accepting of yourself you become and then you can yeah just know when you're overextending yourself and learn to create healthier boundaries for yourself. You've also been really open about speaking about your depression and your struggle with depression as long as I followed you as a climber. Is all of this is kind of this recognition of who you are and realizing maybe becoming more comfortable with yourself and and learning how to extend more compassion to yourself. Is all of that changing? changing your depression is that something you still struggle with as much yeah i'd love to i'd love to hear about that yeah sure it's funny i i guess i should start out by saying like i never really labeled myself as depressed like i think when i was dating georgie like around the time before i did jumble love and around that time and stuff like she wrote some stuff and she i don't want to say assign this label to me but maybe like for lack of a better term used it in reference to my you know my brand of of darkness and stuff but it's funny because i guess like if you look up the clinical definition of the word depression i would probably read it and be like oh yeah i I can kind of relate to that or whatever but it's this word that is used to describe so many different people's whatever darkness (laughs) or self-hate or self-criticism or lethargy or whatever you know it's like Mm -hmm. i've never associated super strongly with that word i guess okay i feel like i don't like it that much because it's kind of i don't know it just feels a little bit icky to me and i want to be kind of proud of my of my brand of of darkness and um my I won't even call it sadness because it's not that, but my, you know, self-hate or self-criticism or whatever. Yeah, depression doesn't feel like something that I can be <laughs> that I can be proud of. Although if it helps other people to talk about or address their own darkness and their own self-criticism, their own self-hate, their own anxiety or whatever, then I'll gladly associate myself with it. But mm. um but yeah, I mean I have been sort of a melancholy 
person, a sort of slightly dark, very introspective person since I was a kid. For pretty much as long as I can remember, I've had this this thing. And yeah, I think one of the symptoms of it is sort of like feeling like things are never enough. Hmm. Another symptom of it is sort of like worrying a lot. And another one is just like feeling guilty, feeling like immense amounts of guilt. Um, And I think that there's definitely a genetic component to it because I see a lot of that in in my parents. Um, I don't think I'm much, I think I'm a little bit more like my mom emotionally. My dad is like really not an emotional person at all, like doesn't, not super introspective, but my mom definitely is. And um, I've, I've always had this, this deep, almost tormenting level of introspection. I think it's one of the reasons that I've always sucked at sleeping. Hmm. But um, yeah, I think being, having that level of, of introspection and that like kind of overactive self-awareness or self-consciousness it comes with a certain amount of like shame Hmm. and so shame is something that i've also always lived with my entire life it's one of those things you know it's like it's in the well of emotion that i that i peer into when i feel when i feel open and when i'm like looking looking within but definitely with with age and with life experience i feel more at peace with it and i feel like my general level of self-acceptance has gotten better and has, has improved in the last few years for sure and it sounds like that's just from the same story that you kind of spoke to earlier about just becoming more open I think so. I mean, I think that 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 definitely had something to do with it. Are there any more tangible things? I'd love to to ask that, you know, maybe for people that are listening. Are there any things that you've experimented with over the years or or anything that you're interested in that you have thought might might help? Um, I don't know, meditation or or therapy or anything along those lines? Totally. Yeah, I've I've experimented with both of those things. So I have a I won't call her a therapist because she technically is not my therapist, but I have a grief counselor mm-hmm. um, who I work with semi-regularly. I've, I've The last six months or so is the first time I've ever worked with someone in that capacity consistently before. Okay. And that has definitely helped me. Cool. Like for sure. Every time I get off of a call with her or out of a meeting with her, I feel better. And I feel like things have been reframed in my mind for the better. Hmm. Um, How often do you see her or talk to her? So it's a little bit random because I was still up until recently, I was still like, you know, traveling a bit here and there. And my schedule was still pretty erratic. Mm -hmm. And so I was scheduling meetings with her just a few days in advance, but I would say on average, like once every two weeks, once a month, Okay, it varies. But yeah, like there have been weeks where I've like talked to her 
you know, once a week for three weeks straight. And there have been, and then there have been like a whole months here and there where I didn't talk to her. Uh-huh. So, um, but I would say the more regularly, the better, like once a week is a great routine. Once every two weeks even is good, but I'm, I'm a big proponent of therapy and yeah, like I've, I've had moments getting off the phone with her where I'm like, wow, I feel so much better. Cool. Yeah. And it's not like I always feel, oh, I feel great now, but it's definitely <laughs> like, I feel better about the way that I'm thinking about things and the way that I'm feeling about things at least. Hmm. And, um, and I have done some experiment, ex- experimenting with meditation too. I've done some intentional sitting on my own here and there over the years it's also been really sporadic, but like when I was trying to nest at night, I would go do little 10 minute sits in between my tries. Hmm. What did that look like? Well, I just, you know, get bundled up in all my clothes <laughs> and I would go sit on the same rock every time facing the same direction. Sometimes the moon would be like shining and be like bathed in moonlight, the area. And I'd turn off my headlamp, turn off my phone. And I just set some, so I was doing that headspace app. And so there was a while where I was using that to do these like little 10 or 15 minute sits. And then sometimes I would just set a timer for 10 minutes and just, um, just sort of focus on my breath and do a mindfulness meditation where I basically just noticed what thoughts and feelings are arising and not, you know, doing anything about it, just observing. Hmm. I also did a, um, a 10 day Vipassana course once. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Which I know Keenan's done. Ben Ditto's done. A lot of people have done it. I think Sharma's done it too. Cool. But, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. I mean, not talking for 10 days and just like, Oh my gosh practicing meditation for 10 days is it's crazy it's one of the hardest things i've ever done (laughs) wow yeah um but that definitely helped me too when was that that was in the spring of 2017 so that was probably like early april late march early april 2017 right before i did the first ascent of everything is karate okay yeah the reason that I even knew about Vipassana meditation was because of Eric Bissell, who is this climber, really awesome guy. Um, he used to be like the head climbing ranger in the valley for a good number of years. Okay. I met him at dinner with a big group of people once, like I want to say six or seven years ago. And he had just done one of these Vipassana courses. And the way that he talked about it i was like wow i'm so interested in trying this like i really want to do something like this it sounds really challenging but it sounds like something that i would really benefit from but i didn't act on those feelings right away i i you know (laughs) it took a couple years but eventually (laughs) i was like okay i'm gonna do it like this is the this is the time and i signed up for one and keenan had actually just done one i think okay and i was hanging out with him so i talked i talked a little bit about it with him but um but yeah I went up to this place in Northern California in um, Lake County and um, yeah, turned my phone off and just 
practiced Vipassana meditation for 10 days. What does Vipassana mean? Or how would you describe that style of meditation to people that, that don't totally know what, what that is? Vipassana, God, I wish I could remember the exact definition, but it's basically like Vipassana actually means something like, and I'm probably going to get this wrong, but it's observing things as they are. Okay. It's similar to mindfulness meditation, but, and I, I'm like, I don't want to give too much away because I don't think I'm supposed to actually. Like, I think it's okay. something that you're supposed to actually learn from the from the course itself. But I can say that it is a practice around observing, like self-observation, basically. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's physical. Obviously, there's a huge mental, psychological component. I mean, I had a really hard time even doing the meditation technique because I was so... I was so distracted by or just within the dialogue in my head. Hmm. I had a really hard time silencing. I think silencing is actually the wrong way to think of it because eventually the breakthrough that I had was like, oh, if I actually just concentrate harder on the meditation technique, then I don't hear the dialogue in my like the the monologue in my head the 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 voice in my head sort of the narrative fades. the narrative sort of fades yeah um if i'm not concentrated enough then the voice is loud and i i can't help but pay attention to it oh, but man it's crazy to just listen to the voice in your head for 10 days <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine yeah i mean my head feels like a torture chamber sometimes <laughs> so yeah it's it's a it's it's a difficult place to live sometimes but definitely for 10 days straight it's it's difficult but i will say that everyone who leaves these vipassana courses they have never felt like a better version of themselves oh wow everyone who leaves has a smile ear to ear for days it's impossible not to you just feel so happy. Maybe huh. part of it is that you're just so happy to be gone from that place. But like, <laughs> yeah, you, you, it's, but you definitely do. It, it definitely, it taught me things that, that I will never forget. I would love to hear some of them. Are you, is there anything that you'd be able to, to speak to, or was there like a shift that has been like a lasting shift that you can describe at all or, or anything? I mean, like I that? think I just got better at, the technique of mindfulness of about the technique or at the technique of observing thoughts and not placing like too much value in them or too much, too much weight on them. Hmm. I think that was one big takeaway for me. Like when I, when I went to Bishop to climb on everything is karate, I felt such a master of, of observation of my own thoughts. Hmm. And I, I feel like I f fell out of practice a little bit of that. Like I definitely get stressed and get swept away in, in thoughts all the time now. But um, another thing that I learned at the Vipassana course was it's okay to forget. I learned that my mind is really addicted to remembering and, and thinking of all the things and, and 
and sort of figuring everything out. And what I learned is it's okay to just, it's okay to not remember. It's okay to forget. If I start to lose the energy to remember something, my mind oftentimes will like want to pay attention to it even more. And it's like, it's okay. I don't need to pay attention to that anymore. In fact, I can forget all about what I was thinking about and it won't matter. Hmm. Letting things go, like things from the past, just thoughts that, that won't leave you alone. Like that sort of thing. Whatever it is. Yeah. Whether it's, whether it's, um, it's a pleasing thought or a tormenting thought, whatever it is. I think it's like you don't have to pay quite so much attention to the story in your head that you have to like finish it every time, you know, Hmm. you have to like take, I don't have to like take every story in my head to its illogical conclusion, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Like I can like take a step back and if I start to feel myself forgetting what I was thinking about or forgetting what I was trying to remember, I can just let that happen. Oh, interesting. Okay. That resonates with me. Yeah. Instead of wanting to pick it back up and instead of wanting to pick it back up and finish the tale. Yeah. Yeah, Because a lot of times it's like, there's no end. (laughs) Yeah. There's no end to those trains of thoughts sometimes. Is there anything else maybe that Eric shared with you when you were at dinner or that you would share with someone at a dinner? If you were talking about the course, like anything that, what was it that made you so curious about it, hearing him talk about it? It just seemed like such a profound experience. It just seemed like something, it was, it was like such a difficult but enriching and it was it totally was that for me um i'd like to think that the more difficult a task the more rewarding it is to complete Hmm. and i think that a vipassana course is a really difficult task to complete but once you've done it you're like oh my god I know so much more about myself than I ever have before. And you just feel so grateful to speak again. I remember on the 10th day, I guess, after the like late morning, early afternoon sit, that's when the instructor person says like, you're, you can go outside and and talk again, basically. Mm -hmm. And you go outside and everyone just has the biggest smiles on their face and nobody knows, like nobody wants to be the person who speaks first and then 15 (laughs) minutes later like everyone's just like i don't know you just you're so much careful about you're so much more careful about what you've what you're saying than you ever have been before wow the other thing that the other crazy thing that i noticed that day was that talking for long periods of time fills me with this jittery electric energy and I had never felt like completely devoid of it before. And so when I started talking again that day, I had to go like be by myself for 30 minutes. Like <laughs> after like 30 minutes of like talking and hearing other people talk, I was like, whoa, <laughs> I am so affected by this. Huh. I can feel it now. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask, are you feeling electrified by the podcast interview? I'm feeling electrified. Well, I just feel electrified after I've been talking for a while. Yeah. I think, you know, your mind, your mind just gets overloaded with, with energy and with output. 
and information and it's hard to my mind basically just starts to short circuit hmm so it felt like a, a rest to be void of that for those a days? huge reset yeah. yeah but it is super fucking difficult i mean i think a lot of people <laughs> don't realize how much effort is involved they're like oh cool i'm gonna go do this like a lot of people call it a vipassana retreat uh-huh. but i think labeling it a retreat is like so incorrect uh-huh. it's like it could not be further from a retreat it's like work it's really hard work ethan thanks so much for sharing all of that yeah of course i'm i'm happy to thanks for giving me uh, an opportunity to my pleasure it's my pleasure um i would love to talk a little bit more about rock climbing <laughs> Okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and we're not going to get to all of it. I mean, I, I mentioned this earlier. Mm. You've done so much. I mean, you mentioned everything is karate. We could talk about that. We could talk about Blackbeard's Tears. I don't know. I don't think we have time for all of it. One thing right. I would love to ask you about, one of my favorite videos that I've seen from you in the last few years was a video of you doing a first ascent in little Egypt. Is that in Bishop? Is that? Yeah, it's Bishop? just, it's right near the buttermilks basically. Okay. And you did the first ascent of a V11 highball called old Greg. And it's a beautiful line. And it, I don't know, it just, it just looked incredible. You had great energy as you were working on it and your excitement, enthusiasm for the line. <laughs> um, I would just love to hear, is there a most meaningful boulder first ascent highball? Um, are, are there any that, are particularly meaningful that stand out to you? Hmm. <laughs> it's hard to uh, it's hard to choose just one <laughs> uh-huh. to to pick that was like particularly meaningful. You know, I think um, I did the second ascent of evolution. Oh, awesome! Yeah, I want to say that nobody had actually topped out that boulder via that start before I did except Jason and he went left. Mm -hmm. I did the first, I did the, like the original left exit that Jason put up. Okay. And that was definitely Jason Kale. Kale, Yeah. Yeah. And and his ascent of evolution undoubtedly ushered in like a new era of bouldering, which is like modern highball bouldering. That ascent, I think impacted so many people's, psych and that was like i don't know probably 2003 2004 pretty long time ago Uh but um but yeah i remember watching that video like so many other climbers of my generation did and being like wow that is inspiring like (laughs) that is that's like a new thing that people aren't really doing much of yet you know Hmm. i'm sure i had done some highballs before that and some long run out sport routes and stuff. Like I had pushed myself high off the ground plenty of times before that. But like when I did this second ascent of, of that variation of evolution in 2006, I think, I don't know if that was a turning point for me, but that was when I was like, wow, this experience of highball bouldering is like something that I am now addicted to basically. Hmm. It combined what I loved about it just like combined everything that I love about climbing into one hmm. into one experience. It's like you almost get the length of a sport route. Like you have like the sustained nature of a sport route, but you have that freedom of bouldering 
but then you ha- have this third thing, which is like this, this commitment aspect and this, this, um, this confidence that it requires that is so, it's just such a, an amazing thing to go after, to try to manifest within yourself. And I think that like, if you're inspired by these lines, sometimes you will just do whatever it takes to climb them. And, you know, sometimes you just like suss them on a rope a little bit, or sometimes you just lower down and chalk the holds and sort of like theorize the moves. And then, you know, once you commit, you're like all in and you, Hmm. you, it requires this level of focus that I feel like sport climbing can require and trad climbing definitely requires because there's oftentimes like an element of danger, but like highball bouldering, I feel like when you're just completely unencumbered by the gear and stuff, it's like, I don't know. It's just such an amazing type of climbing. Awesome. When we were talking on the phone, I was kind of asking if that was something that you were still doing some of, or if you had goals with that. And you were talking about some projects in Yosemite. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I've always been inspired by high proud lines and I feel like if they're on really big boulders, you know, they, they can just draw you in. Like you see a weakness up an otherwise tall blank face and you're like, Oh my God, like, I wonder if it goes. And then if you wrap down something and you, you realize that it does go and that the moves are interesting and that the climbing is cool and it's this big, beautiful line. You just like, oh, I just want to climb it. So, <laughs> um, I saw these these two lines on this boulder in this riverbed in in Yosemite when I was there in November, and just kind of fell in love with how they looked. And and then I wrapped down wrapped down one of them, the more doable looking one that I thought might be like, you know, V seven or V eight or something. And it was like V 10 or V 11 (laughs) (laughs) and the crux, your hands are probably at like 20 feet or something. Okay. So it's, it's pretty high. And the crux move is like, it's not easy. Um, and it's also like just all the climbing there is so condition dependent Mm -hmm. that you really have to have like good conditions, I think in order to do it. So I didn't, I didn't have that much time. I had like two short, like mini track sessions on just one of the two lines. And then the other one I wrapped down and kind of clean, but it looks hard. Like it Hmm. looks hard until the last move. And you're not like, you're not safe standing on top of the boulder until your feet are at like 30 feet probably. So it's almost like a mini free solo really. Uh Um, They both kind of are, but yeah, I'd love to go back. I've been thinking about those things like all winter pretty much. (laughs) But you really can only do them in the fall because in the spring, like in the winter and spring, the rivers is there and it's like the landing is probably underwater. Gotcha. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, there's a lot of, there are so many awesome hard new boulders in Yosemite that I'd like to do. But, um, but those, those I'll probably go back to next fall and see if, see if I can make them feel secure enough to, to want to do without a rope. Okay. And in that video of old Greg, you, uh, you put an anchor in at the top, you bolted mm-hmm, an anchor, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you climbed it clean on top rope before you ever went for it. Is that kind of a, a pretty common approach for you? Is that what you think you'll do with these two Yosemite climbs? 
Definitely. Okay. Yeah. When it's when it's as high as these two things are, I want to basically send it on top rope first. Uh-huh. And I mean, it's not like I have to do the entire thing without falling in order to pull the rope and give a try. But okay. like, I want to feel fairly confident that I can do it before I try. Only fairly confident? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, when I did Old Greg, I think the day that I did it, I don't know if I actually, like, the time before I pulled the rope, I don't know if I sent it entirely clean. Same thing with Kintsugi, actually. I think I was, like, I tried to link the crux, and and that one's not as high, but it's mm-hmm. still pretty high. Like, it's, it, you're probably not going to hurt yourself if you fall off the crux. Like, people do it all the time, and they, they're fine. But I have pulled the rope after attempts where it didn't go perfectly mm-hmm. but i just had that like extra amount of psych you know without the rope i think i think most people who challenge themselves on really committing high ball boulder problems can attest to the fact that once you pull the rope you you are more committed basically and you're more focused and i've had i have had this the situation a few times where I wasn't, you can never be a hundred percent certain. Right. But I, I might not have even been like 90% certain, hmm. or maybe I was like 80% certain on old Greg, but, um, but I did it and then I did it again. Actually, I did it twice that day. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I, and the second time I did it, I had like eight fewer pads in the first time or something. Honestly, <laughs> the first time I did it, I had like too many pads. Like I didn't even know where to put them all. <laughs> so i i learned a new uh term in that video i think when you were prepping so you put in the anchor you sent it on top rope and oh the brown you, point you brown pointed it yeah what is a brown point <laughs> a brown point is when it doesn't mean shit <laughs> no but i mean i don't know it's like who's to say that a top rope ascent doesn't mean anything you know it's like it totally does it is I yeah totally yeah I learned that term a really long time ago from, I think it was Chris Linder. Okay. Um, and obviously it was just like a joke, you know, I don't right. think Chris like has that strong of, of ethics around that sort of stuff, but um, it is funny, but I mean, I don't know, Jeremy Shaneborn, when we were in Joshua Tree this winter or last winter, he always likes to joke that he thinks that top roping is the second purest form of climbing behind free soloing or, or bouldering or whatever. <laughs> 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 free snake top roping specifically but just top roping in general free snake top roping well that's when you that's when there there are no directionals in oh okay yeah when it's just like between you and the anchors uh-huh because he he's had the phenomenon twice where he's sent something on top rope and then hasn't been able to red point it afterwards hmm. it happened to him on what's that crack that really hard crack in joshua tree Stingray. It happened to him on Stingray, okay. and it happened to him on on Broken Arrow in Tuolumne. Okay. He's he's done both of those routes on top rope, but he hasn't <laughs> he hasn't successfully led either of them. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Pretty funny. He calls it the curse of the top rope send. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't yeah. know. It, the placing the gear on that's gotten add some element of difficulty. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Quite a bit, I think, and just the psychological difficulty and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. So you hope to make it back to Yosemite to those climbs in the fall? 
if things open up? Totally. I mean, I have such a long list of stuff I want to do in Yosemite. Uh-huh. Like, I'll, nev- I'll never get to it all. Just bol- those climbs, boulders, those climbs are pretty high on the list. Um, boulders, multi-pitch stuff, walls, everything. Okay. I'm super interested in climbing more walls there, like free climbing more walls. Sick. I want to do first ascents. Like, there's just so many difficult climbing challenges in Yosemite of every type. Totally. I guess there aren't that many sport climbs, but um, there's a lot Everything of else. there's a lot of hard rocks to climb, a lot of cool, inspiring lines to climb in Yosemite, and definitely a lot of boulders. Awesome. Yeah. What about 515? Do you have another 515 sport project that you're excited about right now? Are you going to go back for Elbone Combat, or you've got any others on your radar that you're excited about? I would really like to go back to Spain and finish La Rambla and okay. Elbone Combat someday. Uh-huh. Um, I got really close to doing La Rambla, and I got pretty close to doing Elbone Combat. So it would be nice to go check those off the list. I don't have any plans to go back now, but um, in terms of more local or, you know, domestic hard sport climbing projects, I don't know. Like, I feel like I have to go find something. Hmm. I would really like to climb Dreamcatcher 2 someday. Okay. Maybe I'd go try that this fall if if thing if borders open up again and stuff. But um, 14D up in Squamish. Yeah, 14D or maybe really even 15A. It's, oh, really? It's pretty, it's pretty freaking hard. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's really hard. Um, also, I mean, I've spent like years of my life on Chris Sharma's routes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it would be. I, I would. I would love to go send that though. But it would be really cool. I dream about finding like 14 plus 15 minus sport climbs or trad climbs in the western united states like i know that i uh, there has to be some i'm sure there's probably some like in the desert in nevada and utah there's gotta be one there's gotta be one in the sierras somewhere if i could find a 14 d or 515 sport climb all natural sport climb in the sierras or even just in california i would be freaking psyched (laughs) and i bet there's one out there it would be really cool to find one on granite um, unfortunately it's really hard to find hard natural sport climbs on granite. Mm-hmm. I guess if you find when, when you find them, they're, they're natural, but even on limestone, it's hard, you know, it's just, it's, it's just a hard thing to find. Jonathan talked about this in his episode. He said, you know, he, he said that one of the reasons that there aren't more 515s is just that they're so hard to find. And right. I think, you know, the reason that there's so many of them in Europe is because there's just so much steep limestone in Europe and we just don't have as much here. Right. Totally. Um, what we have are like, you know, granite boulders and we have some limestone and I'm sure that there are more limestone caves and walls and stuff that could, that could provide something like that. You know, maybe the Lee majors extension or a possible extension of that could be a 515 what's that one um this 14 plus limestone sport route that nathaniel coleman fa'd in southern arizona okay yeah he and so it's like probably 70 feet long or something but the wall keeps going and it would just be cool to like do an extension you know mm-hmm. just to like exit the, entirely exit the cave and it's a really sick climb 
But yeah, I, I know I have a lead on an area in Nevada, or actually I think it's, no, it's in Utah. Okay. Um, that could potentially have a limestone 515 or 14 plus. It's just so hard to say, you know, because it's like, right. it's so easy for a rock to be chossy or blank or, you know, some combination of the two even. How that even happens, I'm not sure, but like, <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> yeah, totally. it's just so hard to find like an all natural 14 plus or 515. The last two summers, or I guess two summers ago and then last spring, I bolted some climbs at a couple different areas and I bolted some of the best like 14B routes I've ever touched. Oh my but, gosh. Amazing. And they were such, it was like such a cool opportunity. Like wrapping down those lines and like feeling the holds. I was just freaking out, like, oh my God, this is such good rock and these moves are so cool. And oh my God, the whole thing's going to go. Just freaking out. But then, you know, I climbed them in in a few tries Mm. each, you know, and it's like, it's amazing to bolt stuff like that. But um, it would be really cool to find something like that, but like hard enough that it would take me some time, you know? It's interesting to me with with that, hearing you talk about that, that you're still in San Francisco. Are you still in the Bay? Yeah, so I'm in, um, I live in the East Bay at my mom's house right now at least. Um, I'm going to buy a van soon and and, like live more on the road. Gotcha. um, I mean, the reason that I've stuck around in in the Bay is, is for my dad, basically. Got it, yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, if I'm going to keep, I think what, clearly what makes the most sense for me at this point is to like have a van and travel around. And then when I come back to the Bay, like stay with my mom and go see my dad and do Bay area things and then go back on the road. Gotcha. Yeah. I actually just got a text from the guy that I've been talking, talking with at a Mercedes dealership in Sacramento saying that he's getting me my, my dream van. (laughs) Oh, right. Nice. Yeah. What is your dream van? Well, I, a four by four sprinter, of course. Okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. That's I'm, exciting. I'm going to have to like either start making a little bit more money or start living a little bit more frugally <laughs> Okay. <laughs> to afford it, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> You're going to make it happen. Are you going <laughs> to build it out yourself? Yeah. So I'm actually, um, I, I'm like a little bit afraid to talk about all this cause none of it is like even close to set in stone yet. But, okay. um, this guy in Boulder that I know who's the master builder for Van Smith, which is like a van build company. Mm-hmm. Um, he is starting to make these DIY kits that you can basically just tell him what you want in your sprinter van. I think it's not exclusive to sprinter vans, but he said that it, it works way better in sprinter vans because it's basically all these like prefabbed panels and stuff that you bolt to the walls using the existing holes. So you don't need to like drill any new holes. You don't need to cut any of the metal basically. Oh, cool. And it just all, all these pieces just like connect to the wall and then you like slide, you know, the bed in place and you slide all the cabinets in place and they just like lock into place. That's awesome. Yeah, totally. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to do that. 
Nice. I'm going to be like one of his guinea pigs. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> they're not selling it yet because they haven't like tested it. Okay. They want to they make sure that they can just like send it to somebody and have the person just like do it all themselves. Sure. Yeah. So I'm going to cool. do that. It's yeah, exciting. I'm fucking stoked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can't wait to see your Instagram post of the van all done and you striking out on the road one of these days. <laughs> There'll probably be... Um, There'll probably be many more posts before that of me like fucking things up and having to redo things and just agonizing over breaking saw blades and hammering. Probably, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. What is something that you have been especially grateful for lately? I think I'm more grateful now than I've ever been during my time, like during the brief periods where I've lived with my mom or extended periods. Um, I think I'm, I'm really grateful to have her and to be able to stay with her and be able to go on runs in the hills behind her house and not saying, see a single other soul. Hmm. Yeah. I'm just grateful to have this place and this time with my mom. And as frustrating as it can be to live with and even just be around a parent. Not saying, I mean, my my mom is like on the scale of mom. She's like ranks pretty, pretty high. <laughs> um, but even still, it's like, it's difficult for any grown up sure. to live with their parents. But, um, but I do feel super grateful to have her and to be able to stay here during, during quarantine. Awesome. Yeah. And, and definitely for the, for the Hills behind the house to go running in very cool yeah is there something you're most excited to do after quarantine ends it doesn't have to be Um, climbing maybe just like a normal life thing that you've missed (laughs) that you're excited to do i'm excited to hug everybody (laughs) that is a great answer yeah i'm a big hugger everyone that i'm friends with knows how much i love hugging (laughs) I'm, i'm excited to hug all of my friends awesome yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. Uh, where can people find you and connect with you, Ethan? They can find me on Instagram. And I guess that's kind of about it right now. Okay. I um, one of the one of the other projects besides the van thing that I have been thinking a ton about, basically that I've been like guilt tripping myself for not having done already during quarantine is like redoing my website and um and and updating it and um and doing like doing a blog and stuff um just to have like a another space for another outlet for my you know my my creative stuff my photos videos writing whatever thoughts and um i haven't done it yet but um, i'm I'm going to cool yeah okay i'll keep my eye out for that and i'll be sure to to share it when it thanks man yeah Well, Ethan, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I've followed you for a long time, and it's really hard to decide whether I'm more inspired by you with all your climbing or just with you as a human and the way that you you generously share what's behind the curtain with people and share who you are and share what you're struggling with. I mean, I think that is such a generous gift, and you've done a lot of that here today, and I think it's... uh, I think it's really important. I think it really matters. And I really, really appreciate it. It's really uh, generous of you. Man, thanks for saying all that. That um, 
that's really nice to hear. And yeah, it means a lot, means a lot to hear that. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad that it's appreciated and yeah. Thank you so much for yeah giving me the opportunity to, to share and tell my story. I'm going to have to have you back on because I had about twice as much stuff <laughs> on my sheet. Uh, anytime, that, man. That we didn't get to. Perfect. Yeah. Anytime. Awesome. It's, it's been a pleasure. It's, it's for real. It's been, it's been amazing to talk to you and um, yeah. Next time we talk, you should let me interview you because I feel like <laughs> I know next to nothing about you and you know um, way too much about me. So <laughs> it, feel, it feels enough. like a very, it feels like a very lopsided. Yeah. Lopsided. Fr- friendship. Imbalanced. Yeah. I, yeah. I wonder if every one of my guests feels that way. That's interesting. <laughs> I hope so. That would make me feel better. <laughs> but also that would make me feel super bad for you. And I, I would feel like you were lonely or something. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows me. No one knows me. No, I, I've actually felt, um, I felt a lot of love doing this and I, I've had a lot of people cool, reach out cool. and, um, it, it's really meant a lot. So no, I, how old are you? I'm 30, 30 years old. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you're young. You're younger than I am. Uh-huh. It's always like it's it's always uh, inspiring to me, and also I feel twinges of guilt when I meet people who are who are younger than I am, who are like doing really incredible things, and and also doing things that I, I wish that I was doing. But um, but no, it's it's super it's super rad that you're doing this. Um, thank you very much. That's very kind. We can do your interview next time. No, I'm okay. You, if you want to do, yeah, I can. I can be the host, and you can be the guest. Whenever, okay. Whenever you're, whenever you're ready. Awesome. I might yeah. have to take you up on that. Hopefully, we can nice. do it in person. That would be ideal. There's a lot of climbing in your neck of the woods that um, that I've been dying to check out. So, dude, love to let's stay love in touch. To give you give you the tour. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, it sounds like you're about two hours overdue for dinner. <laughs> it's fine it's fine so i think i'll let you uh i'll let you get to your your delicious sounding meal thank you man (laughs) i hope you enjoy yeah i hope you have a good good rest of your night and uh i hope you have a safe drive back to oregon thanks so much man really appreciate it thanks for all your time of course all right all right later dude cheers Shake it up, stop when the clock gets 13 You've been working, but you're flirting With the weekend, you can freak out One in a million You're a gem shine when the light grows dim See one, one, two, three, four Cuz, cuz, cuz No one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it Cause no one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it Cause no one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it Cause no one can do it like we do it Like we do it like we do it. We got the rock.